1: Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge, and let's talk about some true crime. Hey. Hey, guys. I almost did the hey, 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 and then I was like, I better not do that.
0: <laughs> but I'll in a way, I out. just did. Yeah, yeah
1: I mean, you, you brought it up, so. It's, it's tough stuff. It's like, I don't know if there's like an online course on how to like, just start, just open your podcast, because I'm not good at it. Well, and I do feel like that burden falls on you. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. It does, though, doesn't it? It does. It always does. It yes. It always does. Yeah. I do have a really funny story that relates to this case. Hmm. Okay. Ready? Okay. So, this morning, I was driving back from dropping my kids off, and all of a sudden—and I'm, like, listening to interviews of, you know, Ted Kaczynski and whatever and all of a sudden I hear this beeping. It's really like quiet, but finally I'm like, oh, I hear that. And at first I thought it was like a squeak of like something on my wheel or something, you know, it was like, or maybe a squirrel. Could be a squirrel. Squeak, squeakity, squeak, squeak. It wasn't speaking <laughs> to me in a squeak. It was like, <laughs> okay. it was almost like, you know, the rotation of a tire It would be like, it was beep. in time and very. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, but it kind of sounded like a squeak beep a little bit. I don't know. Anyway. And I was like, that's weird. And I was like, there's got to be something like, you know, with my axle or some shit. I don't know. My phalange is messed up. <laughs> and so I pull in the driveway and my car stopped at this point and I'm still hearing it. And I turn the radio off and I still hear it. And I'm like, the fuck is that beeping? So I turn the car off and I still hear it. And I was like, Uh, I got a a GTFO yeah because I was like was "Mm -hmm." it getting faster though it was like it wasn't getting faster yet but I didn't want to be around when it did you know what I mean right right right. so I was like obviously I'm very important somebody wants to take me out that's there's no question about it (laughs) but I was just like oh I was so paranoid I was like oh my god God, I'm gonna go I'm gonna blow up and so I got out of the car and I ran in the house and I call my husband, and I'm like, Andrew, there's a beeping in my car. He's like, Huh? Well, I'll take a look at it. And I was like, We don't have no, we don't have time for that. What if it's a bomb? And he's like, the f- Ooh, Oh shit! He's like, <laughs> I just not it. He's like, What the fuck are you talking about? What if it's a bomb? I'm like, You don't understand. I've been prepping for the Unabomber case, so like, yeah. so now you think everybody's bombing you? Yeah. All I can think about is a bomb attached to the bottom of my car. And he was like, well, why do you think that? And I was like, well, the beeping. And he's like, Torella, that's only really in movies. Like if somebody was going to really bomb you, they wouldn't make it where it would beep because then you'd be alerted to it. And I was like, well, now that's scarier. Yeah. And I was like, I guess that's true. Although whoever wants to bomb me probably realizes that I'm an idiot and I wouldn't pick up on it quick enough. So the beeping probably wouldn't help. And he was like, well, you got a point. So, I don't know. He's like, "Well, turn the car back on and see if it's still happening." And I was like, "Are you like 99% sure I'm not going to get blown up?" He's like, "I'm 97." I'm like, "Okay." So, I was like, "Well, my keys are in the house. I'll have to do it in a minute." So, then I go back in the house and I hear the beeping. And I'm like, "Is it me? Like is it Yeah, are you like low battery? Yeah, do I have like a hearing issue or like, yeah, do I am I electronic somehow?" So, I walk over to my purse. And I bend my head down and I hear it. And it's my fucking wireless earbuds. <laughs> they have never done this before. Why were they beeping? They weren't being connected to anything or their like, low know. battery? I Yeah. Well, I had just charged them because they had low battery yesterday and died on me. But yeah, I don't know. So anyway, it was like this very like low, like it wasn't like low as in low volume. It was just like beep, beep, beep. I was like, what is it? But it was my freaking headphones. So I texted him and I was like, call the bomb squad off. Like, it's just my headphones. And he sent me a gift that was like, wow. And I was like, hey, you research Unabomber and see if some random beeping doesn't freak you out. Right. He's like, dude, that's why I can't listen to that shit. Makes me go down a rabbit hole. I was really scared. My heart was like beating. (laughs) It was like beating. It was like beating like fast. (laughs) Um, this is, we're now back in middle school days where you would read Lurleen McDaniel books, <laughs> And after you read every, whichever one you were reading, you had that disease. Yeah. Well, okay. But I bruise really easily. <laughs> so you just never know. I'm just saying that you're susceptible I'm to yeah. being swayed in a specific direction. That's true. That's true. I mean, I was, I was scared. Yeah. So. But alas, you're here to see another day. So, yeah, yeah, no so, bombs here. <laughs> the only thing that I can add to the story, or not even your story, but something that is relatable to Unabomber for me was watching or rewatching Fun with Dick and Jane. Mm-hmm. And when he, Jim Carrey, is getting dressed up for his like first robbery, which she ends up not being able to actually commit, he's like, "Are these glasses too big for my face?" And she's like. Yes. And he's like, what do you think? And she's like, you like the Unabomber. And that's that was it. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Wow. Great. Yeah. Glad we both came with Unabomber stories. I know. Well, kind of. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I just thought I was getting bombed, but. <laughs> <laughs> and I heard it in a movie once. So, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, if you're still with us, <laughs> um, I don't blame you if you tuned that entire thing out and didn't choose not to be a part of this anymore but it was really scary uh, Torella you have to let it go okay you weren't being bombed it was your freaking earbuds so (laughs) but anyway welcome welcome yeah yeah so we're doing the Unibomber. yeah I do think that we should talk about the patreon a little bit first yes let us do that Yes, so if you want additional ad-free content Mm -hmm. or if you want part two of this sucker immediately, yes, because this is a two-parter. Yeah, absolutely. Go over to the Patreon and you can choose whatever tier you would prefer. But the $10 tier gets you access to a lot of episodes. A lot of stuff. Oh yeah, I would say at this point, hundreds. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, sure. And uh, yeah, we've got, we're up to, we're in the 140s on the mixtape. Yeah. And we've got the doc jams. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've got at least, I'm not 100% positive, but I think we probably got around 100 of those too. Yeah. I mean, you've Um, got at least 200 plus episodes to binge, like download binge right now. If you're like traveling for any reason or anything like that. I mean, it's good shit. It is good shit. And again, it's all ad free. And- if that's not enough, you can also join us on our Spotify Green Room show, True Crime Rewind. Mm-hmm. and that's on Tuesday nights at eight p m. Central Time. And the best part about it is you get to talk to us actually if you choose to. You yep. can request to speak and have a complete conversation with us. So we've had some very good conversations. Yes, we have. yeah, it's been really fun. It really has, yeah. so um, so there you go. Yeah, check it enough out. Of, enough of the business. You want to yeah. go ahead and get into it? Let's jump right on into it. Okay. So, how familiar with the Unibarber case were you? None. I knew very vague things, obviously, bombing. Right. I knew that he lived in a shack all by himself. Yeah. I never really did a lot of research on this case before this. So, it was one that, like, you know, you have general information about, but mm-hmm. yeah. So we've learned a lot, that's for sure. But uh, we'll give you a little overview in case you, like us, were not super familiar with it. Well, I think first we should do trigger warnings. Oh, yes, go ahead and do that, yeah. Yeah, so here are some things that you are going to hear us discuss. It's going to be bombs, gore, murder, death. If any of that kind of stuff does not sit well with you, no worries. We'll catch you on the, you know, after these two episodes. Yeah, Yeah, next case. And thank you to Christian Loy for requesting the case. Yes, and thanks to Madison for writing it up. Yeah. So now we can do it now. Overview. Okay. On April third, nineteen ninety-six, three men approached a secluded cabin in Lincoln, Montana. The owner, fifty-three-year-old Ted Kaczynski, opened the door and was quickly apprehended by the FBI. The agents celebrated the fact that they'd finally caught him. They'd finally caught the Unabomber, the subject of the largest manhunt in the history of the United States. It was estimated to cost approximately $50 million. And Fitzy, uh, Jim Fitzgerald, who was the profiler on this case, Mm -hmm. he said that that investigation cost more, like just for this one, than all the investigations into all the serial killers they'd ever done before that combined. That's insane. Crazy. But he was a man who terrorized the United States beginning in 1978. Through 17 years, Kaczynski had mailed or placed 16 bombs, injuring 23 people and killing three. He was finally caught when his own brother noted similarities in his uh, letters to him, so like Ted had written letters to his brother, and the manifesto that the Unabomber had published by the Washington Post. Kaczynski became a cultural icon with people wearing his suspect sketch on printed t-shirts. Perfect. Perfect. Many people agreed with his theories and ideas regarding technology's toxic effect on society. After being caught, Kaczynski said that he wanted revenge to get back at the system. Whatever. Still, no one could understand what made a man murder three people and attempt the murder of countless others. Was he insane or was he simply a man who feared the death of society and wanted to get his ideas heard? If he just waited, technology would catch up with him and he could go on YouTube like Sherry Schreiner. Exactly. <laughs> and have a very, 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 very successful YouTube channel. Exactly. Yeah. Because like. there are people out there that want to hear this kind of stuff. But let's talk about who the Unabomber is. Mm-hmm. Theodore John Kaczynski, better known as Ted, was born on May 22, 1942 in Chicago, Illinois, as the oldest child to Wanda and Theodore. I love the name Wanda. Maybe it's my love for Fairly Odd Parents, or something, but I think that it's a great name. Mm-hmm. I love it. I also love Wanda Sykes. Well, absolutely. She's funny. I thought you were going to say you love the name Theodore, which I think is cute, except for Ted Kaczynski. Well, that's where I had the problem, but I do love Alvin and the Chipmunks. Mm-hmm. And there's Alvin, Alvin Simon, Simon and the- Theodore. Do, 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 I listen to a shit. Ton of the chipmunks with my kids. They love having the chipmunks. <laughs> do you regret showing yes, them? 100%. Yes. Every day I regret <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. I feel for you. I do. Yeah. As humans, we're
0: naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash podcast. That's indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit.
1: So seven and a half years later, his younger brother, David, was born. During Ted's childhood, his family moved out of the city into a suburb area of Chicago called Evergreen Park. His parents pushed him to be successful in school, and he even skipped two grades in elementary school. But his success with the grades didn't make him a popular student with his classmates. Unfortunately, that kind of is Mm -hmm. a common thing. Unless it's like 21 Jump Street, and it's cool to do good in school. That's true. Yeah. But that's not real life. No, it's not. Um unfortunately no. He was a small kid and they saw him as different and he participated in extracurricular activities like the German club and chess club. He e- even tested to have a genius IQ of 167. And the average is 85 to 115, which I didn't know because I'm not smart. So, yeah, I didn't. Like I read that his genius IQ level puts him with like the Albert Einsteins of the world. That is so crazy. And again, it's like don't they say something about, like, there's a fine line between genius and insanity? Like, he could have gone. hmm Right. Yeah, he could have French done amazing French. things. But mm-hmm. also, I think when you put kids ahead in school like that, like, you know, when he was 16, he starts going to fucking Harvard University. I know. He's 16. So he's not emotionally ready for that. No. I mean, well, Torella, it worked in smart guy. That's true. Doogie Hauser. Yeah. But like, you know, you've got people who it's really hard to get into Harvard. So you've got people who had to work uh, their asses off. But like it's off. hard. <laughs> oh my God. I almost said that. I like <laughs> anti said that, but said that. <laughs> like people who have to work really, really hard to get there, you know, they bust their ass. It might take them, you know, longer. And then this kid walks in at 16, no problems at all. Mm-hmm. You know, people are going to be jealous and resentful. And and also, he's 16. He's not ready for a college lifestyle. No, no, not at all. I mean, you're right. When you're right, you're right. I'm very rarely wrong. <laughs> so you kind of stepped on my point. Uh, the next thing that I was going to say was that at 16, he was accepted to Harvard. Um, yeah, but what else did they do at Harvard? He studied mathematics. He was also a participant in an experiment that was being conducted by one of the professors. And in the experiment, those participating were subjected to extensive verbal abuse. Perfect. We love that. Especially for like, an. I mean, by this point, he's what, like 17 maybe? But still, yeah. (laughs) Wow. And I mean, he, I don't know, bullying might be a strong word for what he experienced in high school, but he wasn't a popular kid. So it's like, that's already... No, I think I think probably bullying is appropriate. Do you think? Uh, I don't know. I think so. I mean, yeah, kids are fucking assholes. They really are. Can be. It's their natural state, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> you little jerk. But this experiment was one run by a respected psychologist named Henry A. Murray and the subjects were being evaluated on how they reacted to stress while being verbally abused. Two producers of a documentary about the Unabomber were able to get an audio tape from one of the sessions experimenting on Ted. And an unnamed person was recorded calling Ted's ideas. I feel like this is supposed to be asinine. I think it is, yeah. Insipid and a lot of garbage. And there were several people who supposedly believed that these experiments had a significant effect on Ted's personality. And how could they not? Right. One of his friends at Harvard said that Ted withdrew with from him after the experiment started. Even his brother, David, believes that the experiments wounded his brother. Apparently, they went on for like three years. That is cruel. Yeah. It went on— Just because you want to see— Okay. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. The point is to see how someone reacts to something like that. Are you going to provide therapy for somebody after putting them through this? Yeah. Because, yeah, it's really— Even for, you know, the kids that were of age, you know— they're still kids. Yeah. I mean, there's again a reason you shouldn't be able to, you can't even rent a car until you're 25. Yeah. Because you can't make the right choices. Exactly. And like, it's not like they were just like, you know, hey, you look stupid in that shirt or whatever, which obviously is still not nice. But like, they had them write an essay which detailed everything that they hold sacred. So, like, your core belief system. What is your foundation? And then that's what they used to rip them apart. Mm -hmm. Like for somebody who's 17, 18, who's already been, you know, bullied, has never felt like he fit in, and you're being subjected to this kind of abuse for an extended period of time. I mean, I know it's not like, you know, three years straight, but like over the course of a couple of years, he has to go in and do these like sessions or whatever. What Mm -hmm. the, I just, you know, and it seems like the university just let this guy do whatever he wanted to do. Yeah, no regulations, no nothing. Just I mean, it was the '60s. Yeah, exactly. Ugh. And especially, you know, men at that time, boys, whatever, you're not supposed to be able to hurt their feelings. They're supposed to be tough. Mm-hmm. Which but is I awful. mean, this it really affected Ted. Yeah. In 1962, Ted graduated from Harvard with an undergraduate degree in mathematics, and he entered a graduate program at the University of Michigan. He assisted with teaching classes and working on his dissertation, which was praised by many others in his field. He earned a graduate degree and a doctoral degree in mathematics and left Michigan in 1967 and headed west to begin teaching at the University of California, Berkeley. But... Even though he was very knowledgeable in the subject he was teaching, Ted was struggling to make connections with people, and it was difficult for him to give lectures, and he would even avoid having (laughs) contact with the students. That's not going to work. No. Yeah, (laughs) no. His antisocial personality continued to worsen, and Ted began to develop a strong contempt for technology and modern things. And in 1969, 27-year-old Ted quit his job teaching, and he left Berkeley. In the early 70s, Ted and his brother bought a large plot of land in Lincoln, Montana, where Ted built himself a small cabin with the help of his brother. This is the extent of my knowledge <laughs> before researching this Right? on yeah. the Unabomber, right? He lived in almost complete isolation, and the cabin was 10 by 12 feet. He didn't have any heat, electricity, running water. I don't know how he did it because it gets cold in Montana, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. He... Hunted rabbits. He grew his own vegetables, and he spent most of his time reading books from a local library and writing about his increasing anti-government and anti-technology thoughts. It's not good for somebody like this to be in complete. It's not good for anybody, honestly, to be in complete isolation. Right. Yeah, it's not. I just, yeah. David was excited for his brother that he was finally living the life he wanted and not conforming to anyone's expectations, and he felt that his brother had a very bright future ahead of him, which he could have. Mm-hmm. In 1978, Ted moved back to Chicago for a short while to get a job working at his brother's factory and he began a relationship there with a female supervisor that ended very poorly. Angry at her, Ted wrote several inappropriate poems about her and was eventually fired by his own brother. (sighs) Can't do that, Ted. It's not fair. Can't do that. Not long after, Ted left Chicago and moved back to his cabin in Montana. I would fire your ass in a heartbeat. (laughs) I'm surprised you haven't already. I know. Sometimes I just dream about it. Just well, kidding. the day's not over yet, you know. You so. haven't written any inappropriate poems about me yet, so <laughs> that you know—that's <laughs> true. Once I find them, your ass is grass. <laughs> what? If, oh God, I'm trying to think of the '70s show. Die away from me. Oh yeah. Remember his little uh, limerick or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Just die away from me. <laughs> okay, so Madison titled this section "Can't Say Bomb on an Airplane," and I love it. Yes, bomb, perfect. bomb, 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 bomb. On May 25th, 1978, a package wrapped in a brown paper bag was found on the campus of the University of Illinois, Chicago. The return address on the package belonged to Professor Buckley Christ Jr., who taught at the nearby Northwestern University. School officials returned the package to the professor, but he didn't recognize it. He's like, okay, it says return return to sender. I'm the sender. Mm-hmm. I did not send this package. So WTF. And he called security. And the package exploded upon opening and injured the security officer. Thanks. And thank goodness he was only injured. I know. On May 9th, 1979, a student at Northwestern University found a box inside of a room that looked like a present. When he opened it, it exploded, injuring him. On November 15th of that same year, a bomb exploded on the American Airlines Flight 444 that was headed from Chicago to Washington, D.C. Fortunately, the bomb didn't work as it was intended. And the plane landed safely, but multiple passengers were treated for smoke inhalation. Guess what, Ted? If you try to bomb a commercial airline, that's a federal offense. Yeah, now you've just stepped up into the big leagues. Yeah, you cannot. You can't say bomb on an airplane. You you cannot say bomb on an airplane. (laughs) You cannot bomb an airplane. No, at the very least, it's very frowned upon. Well, exactly. And you know what? I don't mean to come at Ted. Actually, yes, I do. Yeah. You sure can't bomb an airplane with a faulty fucking bomb, you stupid idiot. Thank God it it didn't. But I'm just saying. Yeah, but I mean, you would think like for how smart he was, there were some like just dumb mistakes that he would make where he Mm -hmm. would like just not take certain things into account. Like one of the bombs that he, you know, tried to sit that first one he tried to send in the mail. It was too big to fit in the mail. So like people had to hand deliver it to him. And it's just like, hello. <laughs> like, right. I do wonder if maybe he wanted it to happen very quickly. So, you know, when you're rushing, you don't think yeah. about certain things. But yeah. also, even though he's book smart, doesn't mean he's common sense smart. Exactly. Who knows? Yeah. He probably doesn't like the postal service either. Right. <laughs> there are some things book learning can't teach you. That's you know what I mean? True. That is true. So, this bomb had a different design from the bombs at Northwestern. It was set to be triggered by an altimeter. Is that how you would say that? Sure. That was constructed from a barometer. I feel like it has to be meter at the end, not meter. Yes. So, altimeter. Yeah. And barometer. Yeah. So, that's why I'm thinking altimeter. I think so. Yeah. I mean, who knows? The phalange. Sure. Yeah. When the plane reached a certain altitude, it would cause an explosion. And it was later determined that the package was inside the cargo area of the plane and had been mailed from Elgin, Illinois. I don't know how to say that either. And don't feel the need to message us about the proper way to say either of these. It's not that big of a deal. We're fine. I'm fine not knowing. It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. At this point, all of these bombings were being treated as separate incidents. To the public's knowledge, law enforcement had not connected them or attributed them to one person. On June 3rd, 1980, Percy Wood, the president of the United Airlines, of the United Airlines, of United (laughs) Airlines, received a mailed letter. I felt such an old lady. I know, I know. (laughs) The Kroger's. Yeah. The Walmarts. Yeah. mm -hmm. The letter was signed Enoch W. Fisher and said that he would soon be mailed a book of social significance. One week later, June 10th, a package arrived for Wood. It contained a copy of the book Ice Brothers by Sloan Wilson. And when he opened the book, it exploded. The book had been hollowed out and a bomb placed inside. Wood was injured but did survive. The FBI was contacted by postal inspectors regarding the bombing. And the FBI opened a case file titled Unibomb. No B at the end at this point. And the UN referred to the university bombings. The A referenced the airline bombing. And by this point, investigators had begun to notice design similarities between the Flight 444 bombing and the bomb that was sent to Percy Wood. So they're, at this point, connecting them all together. So it started as, like, the case was Unabomb, and then the media kind of just turned it into the Unabomber. Because sounded better. It does. Yeah, it does. And I also um, listened to the Generation Y episode, mm-hmm. and they said that, At first, they were calling this, I think it was like the junkyard bomber or something like that because the first bombs, like they couldn't, you know, attribute any pieces to like manufacturers or anything. It just, it was all scrap stuff put together as bombs. So they called them the junkyard bomber. And then when they, the FBI opened this case, they dropped that and picked up the Unabomber. I kind of like the junkyard Bomber. I kind of do too. Yeah. The garbage can I know crap yeah I feel like there should be something like it should never be a cool name it should be like no because unabomber kind of sounds cool yeah dirty trash can full of poop bomber yeah exactly yeah um I will say though while I was researching and watching things on this I was like how does a pipe bomb work and then I was like maybe I'll go no (laughs) do not google it Well, it's almost Christmas, and I wasn't sure what to get you. Maybe I'll get you the anarchist cookbook. I know. Find out. I don't want to know how to make one. I just really want to know, like, I want somebody to explain to me how it works because I know with a pipe bomb, isn't it like a bunch of little pieces, and then they just like it's just shrapnel coming at you. No idea. Right. Right. See. I don't know. It's got a pipe, I guess. Yeah. Right. Like I don't understand it. I just want to know explosive powder how it works but I don't want to I don't want to get flagged by the government for wondering well you've just you've said too much and I've already (laughs) sent something out I'm like you need to watch this bitch Uh. (laughs) she's researching bomb making (laughs) I couldn't make one even if I had a kit (laughs) (laughs) be like I don't get which piece goes where forget it no yeah well and of course okay So, Ted hates technology. Therefore, he is not using anything that's technologically sophisticated. Mm -mm. And, like, his wood was low quality. Everything was homemade. It all— It was messy. Yeah, it was just messy. It just was not, like, well done. And, again, you've got somebody who is so fucking smart, but he refuses to allow technology into his life, which probably could have helped him make better bombs, which, thank goodness, he didn't. Because they're not killing people yet. Exactly. But still, it just, you know, low quality stuff. And that would not help the profilers, even if, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't, was profiling even a thing back then? Somewhat, yeah. Yeah, right? But it's, I'm guessing that they would think it was more of like a, um, why can't I think of his name from Evil Genius? Hmm. Bob oh, gosh. Rothstein? Yes, Bill Rothstein. Bill Rothstein. Yeah. Yeah, they would probably think it was more of a Bill Rothstein. Mm-hmm, like a hoarder has all this stuff, and yeah, yeah who's just yeah, run the mill. I mean, Rothstein was smart too, but I'm not saying not he wasn't, but yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. So now we've got a serial bomber. We believe a joint task force was formed between the FBI and the Postal Inspection Service. Soon after, the task force grew to include. Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and this was the return address on the first mail bomb, Northwestern University and United Airlines. On October 8th, 1981, a student at the University of Utah found a large package outside of a university computer mainframe room. The package was wrapped in brown paper and tied with string, and it had been sitting there for quite a while. The student was suspicious of it and called university security. Security determined that the package contained a pipe bomb and a can of gasoline. Mm-mm. They moved the device into a women's restroom and blew it up. Why did they have to do it in the women's restroom? I know, that's rude. How did they transport it without it going off? <laughs> I don't like, I mean, good on the student to be like, that looks weird because it's entirely possible that they had not heard about these other bombings, you know? This is the oh, 80s, sure. like, I mean, there's national news and stuff, but still, you know, it's not like. You know, Facebook chain or whatever. Well, yeah, and I mean, we don't watch the news. No, I don't. I don't like that show at all. Yeah, you know, hate that fucking show. <laughs> That's a quote from Idle Hands. Don't come at us for not watching the news. <sighs> I've gotten negative joke. comments about that one before. Just a joke. Well, <laughs> we've gotten negative comments about a lot of things, but we won't go into that. Oh, sure. Yeah, we all have. So after this, the unibomb Task Force was contacted. In May of 1982, Professor Patrick Fisher, a computer scientist, was working at his office at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. Uh Uh-uh. See, now it's personal. I know. I know. Now he's in Tennessee. I don't even think think so. So, yeah. When he received a package in the mail, the package had originally been sent to his former address at Penn State University, where it was forwarded to his current office. He hadn't worked at Penn State in about two years. The return address belonged to a professor at the University of Utah, and Fisher's secretary opened the package, which exploded, and she was injured, but she did survive. And, like, that's another thing, too. He keeps sending shit to the wrong person or, like, whatever because mm-hmm. he won't use any use, form of technology yeah. to find out, you know, like, mm-hmm. if that person is even still at this address or not. Or just right. pick up the phone and fucking call. Like, I don't know. It's honestly, well, no, he does not believe in phones, so jot that down. Yeah. But yeah, it's amazing, though, that it gets rerouted so many times and doesn't go off somehow in the process. I know. And like, I mean, I guess he did trigger, like, form them to trigger when they open, but still, like, stuff gets jostled around so much, you just never know. I know. On July 2nd, 1982, a professor of electronic engineering, I am not sure how to say this name. I'm going to say Diongenies. Okay. Angelacos? Yeah. At the University of California at Berkeley, picked up a package that was left in the teacher's lounge. It exploded, injuring him. The bomb looked very complicated, but investigators stated that it was simply another pipe bomb inside of a gas can. The device included a note that said, Woo? It works? I told you it would. RV. What is that? I mean investigators connected the note with the bomb because the paper that the note was typed on was the same type of paper used as electrical insulators in the device. So there you have it. But Mm -hmm. so far, this makes no sense, right? Right, absolutely. So by this time, it was clear that there was a dangerous person targeting people across the United States. And though most of the bombs were sent to professors at universities, there hadn't been a clear pattern established and there wasn't a solid connection between the intended victims. They had found many similarities between the devices, particularly what seemed to be a signature from the bomber. Inside of the devices, the initials FC were either etched or stamped. Now I saw a picture from, I guess, the a pieces, a pieces, pieces of the bomb, <laughs> just one pieces, mm-hmm. um, and it did say FC, but they were so zoomed in on it, I was like what are all of these little markings? And then they (laughs) zoom out and I'm like, oh, it's, okay. All of those make the F and the C. I get it now. I just felt like, I don't have an IQ of 167, okay? (laughs) So you can't see the forest for the trees. Could not. Mm -mm. No. So it was designed so that this piece would survive. And whiteboards at the task force headquarters were covered in phrases that were abbreviated by FC, but they couldn't find anything. Because the bomber continued to utilize homemade parts for his device, it made it extremely hard for anyone to attempt to track him. The FBI and Postal Inspection Service decided that the FBI would handle devices that had been placed somewhere, and the PIS would deal with mailed services. Devices. Or mail devices. <laughs> I said services. <laughs> they, they do handle the mail services in general. <laughs> That's their job. Right, but this, this time they're going to focus more on the devices. Sure, sure. Yep. The FBI's attempts at profiling the bomber were fruitless, and there wasn't any reference of serial bombers to help assist with the profile building, so they referenced profiles of previous serial arsonists. After the bombing at UC Berkeley, the Unabomber seemed to kind of fall off the face of the earth. The FBI took this time to compile everything they knew about the bomber, though it wasn't very much. They knew he had a manual typewriter and kit to make rubber stamps so he could mark packages. Most importantly, though, his devices were getting increasingly more sophisticated. In May of 1985, a student, John Hauser, in the same building as the previous bombing at UC Berkeley, picked up a package that was lying in a computer study area. It exploded when he picked it up and seriously injured him. The explosion was so severe that it blew several of Hauser's fingers off and across the room and into a wall. Jeez. His fingers hit so hard that his Air Force Academy ring imprinted letters into the wall. Oh my gosh. I know, right? His screams alerted a professor nearby who used his necktie as a tourniquet on Hauser's arm. And the professor was Why did I ha- Diogenes? I think that's Angelakos. Yeah. The same man who was injured from a bomb three years earlier in the same building. Hauser was left without several fingers, damaged to his arm, and blind in one eye. Mm. Awful, yeah. While inspecting the device, experts found that it was the first bomb that used metal caps rather than wooden caps. The metal caps caused more destruction than wood, and they also found the bomber's signature FC inside. While investigators were on scene at the site of the U.S. Uh, UC Berkeley bombing, they were notified by the Boeing Corporation fabrication plant near Seattle, Washington, that they had found a device in their receiving office. They said that the package had just been sitting in their receiving office for almost a month until somebody opened it. Unfortunately, what kind of system do they have in place where they're not opening shit for a month? I have no idea, but thank God they did because yeah, by then the batteries had dried up and it didn't explode. Yeah, the requesting or responding bomb squad took photos and detonated the bomb safely. The FBI had been focusing their investigation on suspected or suspects they'd compiled from employees from three different companies and students and alumni from at least five different universities. They were trying to narrow it down and made the decision to remove everyone that had been born before 1955. Hmm. They remained very cautious about releasing any information they had to the public. In November of 1985 in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Professor James McConnell received a package along with a letter in the mail. The letter said that was said to be from Ralph Kloppenberg, who was a PhD candidate at the University of Utah. In the letter, it said that he wanted the professor to review his enclosed thesis, paying special attention to chapters 11 and 12. His student assistant, Nicholas Suno? Sure. Opened the package and was injured when it exploded. Coincidentally, after mentioning chapters 11 and 12, the package had been mailed on November 12th. 11, 12. I know. OMG. Oh. Less than a month later, on December 11, 2011. Oh my God! It is, it is. 38-year-old Hugh Screton, the manager of a computer rental store, picked up a package in the parking lot of the strip mall where his store was in Sacramento, California. The package exploded, killing him. Mm. Screton was the Unabomber's first fatality. Investigators began utilizing professor- professionals to help with victimization and attempting to figure out why the bomber was choosing the individuals he chose. Profilers continued to place the Unabomber as a white male between the ages of 35 and 45 years old that likely he was from around the Chicago area. They also knew that this person had to have been in Chicago, Salt Lake City, and Northern California since bombs had been sent or placed in these locations. On February 20th, 1987, an employee at a computer store in Salt Lake City noticed some movement outside of the window of the store. She briefly made eye contact with a man before he looked away, sitting down a small piece of wood on the ground and walking away. The store got busy and the employee really didn't think much of it. Gary Wright, the son of the owner of the store, saw the piece of wood sitting between the building and where cars were parked. There were four nails sticking out of the wood. Wright reached down and put his fingers on the end of the bottom piece, and as he lifted it, he heard a sound that he described as a loud screech. The bomb exploded. Wright recalled everything happening in slow motion. There was a large amount of shrapnel in this device, and Wright suffered several injuries but survived. The bomb had detonated and hurt someone, but finally there was a witness. Oh, my gosh. And this is where he's starting to add, like, a lot more shrapnel. He's -hmm. putting stronger pieces into place. He's He's looking to cause fatalities. Absolutely, yeah. There's just up in the ante. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Investigators immediately brought the witness from the computer store to meet with a sketch artist. This is when the infamous first sketch of the Unabomber was created. He was described as a white male in his late 20s. He was wearing a hoodie with the hood pulled up and a pair of aviator sunglasses over his eyes. He had a mustache and his hair was reddish blonde. The witness estimated him to be approximately 5'10". The FBI immediately released the sketch and hoped that someone would recognize the man with a hood over his head and aviator sunglasses covering his whole face. I've seen people like that, though, so that's true. Yeah. Yeah. After this, the Unabomber went silent again. The task force attributed this to him having been seen in Salt Lake City, and perhaps this had scared him into hiding. But unfortunately, he was not finished. On June 22, 1993, Dr. Charles Epstein, a geneticist at the University of California, opened a package at his house in Tiburon, California. I'm not sure how to say that. I think so. Okay. His daughter had brought in the mail and then left the room. Upon opening the package, it exploded. And Epstein survived, but lost several fingers, suffered major abdominal injuries, a broken arm, and permanent hearing loss this is so cruel. It really so, is. And like uh, no regard for, I mean, obviously he doesn't care if people die, but like, you know, people's children, bring, mm-hmm. you know, will bring in the mail. Like if the kids walk with me down to the mailbox, I let them, you know, each carry some. Like, well, I remember that being really exciting to go check yes. the mail. Yeah. They freaking love that shit. It's like so terrifying because you get something in the mail and like, Even if you didn't necessarily order something, it can be like a fun surprise. Like, ooh, I didn't know I was getting a package. Like, Mm -hmm. just because you weren't expecting a package isn't concerning necessarily, you know? Right, absolutely. I mean, somebody can, like, I got a very nice throw blanket that I'm using right this very second from my little nephew, Ben, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just as a gift. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't expecting it. Yeah, I mean, it was your birthday, but still. I still wasn't expecting it. Because I was like, When did I order this? Uh huh. Yeah. And I could not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you never know. It's so scary. Mm -hmm. It is. It's real. Just no, no regard for human life at all. No, not at all. And imagine the excitement of going to the mailbox and getting a zoo book
0: and then opening it and it like
1: blasts you right in the face. Like that's, it takes fingers off. Uh huh. Uh, I mean, it killed some one person already. Yeah. How traumatic too for like, especially young people, like seeing their parents get blown up. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Like, okay, well, I'm never checking the fucking mail again, right? My God. <sighs> Two days later, a computer scientist at Yale University, Professor David Gellernter, Gellernter? Sure, okay. Opened a similar package that he'd received in the mail at his office in New Haven, Connecticut. The package exploded, blowing off several of his fingers, but he did also survive. Both of these packages had been mailed from Sacramento, California, six days earlier. After a six-year hiatus, the Unabomber had returned, and this brought new life into the case. The FBI made the decision to closely review each bombing again. They were assigned to pick a partner in the task force so that they could bounce ideas off of each other. Special Agent Terry Turchie was asked to take over the lead of the Unabomber case. A computer consultant was hired to clean up and compile all the data they had collected over the years. They made a file titled Unibomb Known Facts, Fiction, and Theory. They routinely added, deleted, and edited information in this as they investigated and assessed. And most importantly, Turchie felt they needed to have another look at the bomber himself, which included a fresh, updated profile. He asked Special Agent Kathleen Puckett to tackle it. Puckett was part of the counterintelligence team and working toward her PhD in clinical psychology. Doesn't sound like she has her PhD, though. You know, she's working towards it. So not qualified is what I'm hearing. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Well, you know that women who are going to get any kind of degree takes them longer because smaller brains, but also that makes them read books and we don't want them doing that. Oh no. I've been reading, reading. Yeah. I've been watching the great on Hulu and she is struggling with trying to get them to on board with having women know anything. Mm. Is it set in like, Oh, it's like seventeen seventy six. Oh gosh! Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Women definitely were like, it'll put thoughts in their head. Exactly. It's like <laughs> powdered wigs. Men wear the tights and the little heels and stuff. I don't know what time right. this is. Catherine the Great, whatever that was. I don't know. Yeah, I don't read. I I can't know these things. Yeah, I, don't I don't know it either. Yeah. Mm-mm. 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 So unfortunately, there was not much information available to help build the profile of the Unabomber. There had been no forensic evidence found on any of the packages or at any of the scenes. Nothing from the devices could be traced. Batteries had been stripped, so they couldn't be tracked to where they were purchased from, and the things used to build the bombs looked like junk and were impossible to trace. As the task force continued to reinvestigate every bombing, they noticed more. The first bombing, the device had been fa- that had been found on the University of Chicago campus and was returned to Northwestern University caught their eye. The package appeared to have been intended for the mail, and it had been addressed and stamped, and there was even a mailbox nearby. Turchi theorized that perhaps the package had been too large to fit in the mailbox, like you said earlier. The team recreated the size of the device and re- referenced records that showed the size of the mailbox on the site at the same time and found that the package would not have fit. Around the same time as the two recent bombings, the New York Times received a letter in the mail claiming to be from the Unabomber. It had been mailed the same day as the two bombs. Puckett summed up the letter as a, the writer taking credit for the bombs and claiming to be an anarchist group known as FC Freedom Club. FC. Freedom Club. Fight Club. Ooh. The first rule yeah. of Freedom Club is you don't talk about Freedom Club. <laughs> <laughs> Ride chicken. Oh. Yeah, I wonder what all their phrases were. Right. Yeah. You think they did have fried chicken up there? I hope. Yeah. Gosh,
0: I would join fried a fried chicken, chicken group.
1: I want to be president of that, <laughs> that fried chicken group. Tory Brothers, president of Fried Chicken America. <laughs> I love fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. ridiculous. What are why nah, what are we doing? What are we know. talking about? <laughs> I don't know. Okay, let's get back on track. So the writer said that by the time they would have received this letter, something significant would have occurred. The letter was short and double-spaced. It was just a short little paragraph, but the task force felt that they had multiple opportunities to find real evidence from the letter. They studied the typeface the typewriter used, the paper, the stamps, where it was mailed from. They looked for fingerprints, saliva, any type of DNA. And guess what they found, Torella? Bupkis. Nada zilch. Go seg. <laughs> Despite the lack of forensic evidence, Puckett and Turchi could tell from his wording the Unabomber had become more sophisticated. He was obviously older, but seemed to be more in control. They also felt confident that this was one person, not a big part of a group. Oh. Not, not part a big of a big of group. group. Exactly. exactly yeah. the Order yeah. those. Yeah, those words should have been in. Yeah, but he did use like. In the letter, he did use like we and, you know, like. Yeah. try to were throw them him. off. Yeah, yeah. And they were like, okay. Right. We. we know it's a you. Yeah. Not a we. Terji said that there was no way a group could have stayed this tight-lipped for so long. Exactly. And she's absolutely right. Or he. Excuse me. Yeah, I got him confused. Puckets the sheet. Mm-hmm. Upon further investigation of this letter, they found indented writing on it as though someone had laid another piece of paper on top of it and wrote on that. It read, call Nathan R. Wednesday, 7 p.m. They felt like this could have been his first mistake. The task force began to search into every Nathan R. they could locate. And from what Madison could find, nothing came of this. I don't know. But this didn't produce any leads, unfortunately. So, Well, I mean, Nathan R. and you've got the entire world. Yeah, exactly. Like, even if you're honed in on just the United States of America... There's got to be like at least four or five Nathan R's. At least. Well, but he's trying to trip people up so much. I mean, uh-huh. What, in what world do we think he would have used a telephone? Well, yeah, exactly. Call Nathan R. Yeah, that probably nope. didn't happen. Did not he would have ridden his horse and buggy to Nathan R's <laughs> Exactly. <Property. laughs> yeah, his, his teeny little bike that he made all by himself. Squeaky, squeaky, squeaky. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah. All right, on December 10th, 1994, Thomas Mosser, an advertising executive, opened a package that he received at his home in North Caldwell, New Jersey. And this is where things are taking a much more sinister turn for the Unabomber. And we're not going to talk about it right now. No, we have to talk about that in part two. Yeah, so sorry. Yeah. But if you're a patron, you got it now. Enjoy it. Yeah. 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 and if if not, that's okay. We'll catch you next week with part two. And uh, sorry about the cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. But you know, we got to do it with the part twos. Yeah, could not wave that. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Yeah. So definitely uh, come hang out with us for part two next week. And you know, otherwise, just just have a great one. You know. Yeah, and you know what? Come hang out with us on Spotify Green Room too. Yes, we want to see you on Tuesday for sure. Yes. And just make sure that like all your devices are properly charged, and they don't like beep at you and scare you and stuff exactly yes that's important and don't just be careful when opening mysterious packages my gosh i know now i'm like nervous because i'm ordering like a lot of amazon shit right now because we're recording this in november so we're prepping for christmas and like you know i mean i already had the headphone scare this morning so (laughs) yeah i mean i don't know how you're gonna recover from that one i know exactly But guys, just stay safe out there. And thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at KillerQueensPodcast.com for merch and other info about the show.